This is the L2 Capital Podcast with hedge fund manager Marcelo Lopez. The L2 Capital Podcast focuses on potential opportunities in the market and brings to your industry leaders and an intelligent conversation about their respective areas of expertise. And now, here's your host, Marcelo Lopez. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the L2 Capital Podcast. I have the pleasure to talk today to Russell Napier, founder of Eric, in a course called The Practical History of the Financial Markets. Russell was ranked the number one Asian strategist in the late 90s and wrote a very famous book, which I read and recommend, called Anatomy of the Bear. Russell, welcome to this program. It's a pleasure to have you here. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Now, before we touch on the subject today, could you please tell us a little bit about Eric and the course you established at Edinburgh? business school? Yeah, so I've been in the research business for uh, 25 years now, and the whole business is changing. Due to European legislation, which is having a global impact, it looks like research, financial research, economic research, stock research will no longer be attached to dealing commission. So Eric is a website where if you are in the business of buying such research, and that is really just for institutional investors, you can come to that website and you can buy research completely unattached to broken commission. So that's what Eric is. And we've got about 140 different research providers all selling research up on Eric. So if you happen to work for a regulated uh, investment institution, you can come to Eric. The course is different. It's a charitable venture, something I opened in 2004, a long time ago, to try and teach financial history. Once again, primarily to professional investors, you'll be aware that most finance taught today focuses very heavily on equations and numbers, and the practical history of financial markets adds in something else, whether it's sociology or psychology or philosophy. It all gets wrapped up in the word history, and we hope to add something to the standard finance education uh, by looking at some things in, in financial history. So the exciting news is we are uh, sadly not taking it anywhere too close to Brazil, but at least we're crossing the Atlantic and we're taking it to Toronto in April, London in March, and for those of you with big woolly coats, Edinburgh in February. Brilliant. Russell, you, you recently wrote an article for the Financial Times called Cracks Are Opening in the Global Monetary System, and a few of your points caused a bit of controversy. You said what we're going through now is not a late cycle, but something way bigger than that, and it will impact asset prices as much as the end of Bretton Woods system or the end of the gold standard. So could you please walk us through your main points and let us know what's going to happen in your opinion? Yeah, well, we have to start with what the global monetary system is, because clearly it is not as formal as Bretton Woods, nor is it as formal as the gold standard, nor is everybody a member of it. So what I'm referring to is that bit, and it is a big bit, where people manage their currencies relative to somebody else. Now, that is effectively the emerging markets. And as you know, in Brazil, sometimes that can take a very strong form, uh, such as a currency peg or even a currency board, as they used to have in Argentina. Mm -hmm. Or it can take a fairly loose where you're of a loose view where you're intervening. Uh, but this all really developed after the devaluation of the renminbi in 1994. China then linked its currency in a pretty strong form to the United States of America. It bankrupted many of its competitors. So by 1998, uh, they followed a similar policy. That's what I mean when I call it the global monetary system. And it isn't uh, a very accurate description because obviously there are lots of countries that are not involved in that, such as Japan or uh, Europe or the United Kingdom or Australia or Canada. Uh, but most of the emerging markets are involved in linking their currency to the dollar or in Europe, some of them linked to the euro. And that is the system I'm saying is going to collapse. And obviously, the key to that is the relationship between America and China, between the dollar and the RMB. And since China devalued, it's had an undervalued exchange rate and it's run large external surpluses. And now it doesn't. And that's what I'm specifically referring to in terms of timing. When it ran those large surpluses, it forced China to create a lot of money and buy a lot of treasuries. 
you know, we all focus on how many treasuries China owns, but there's a liability and an asset on every institution. And the other side of those assets, the treasuries, are the liabilities, which is what we call money, or more specifically, bank reserves is what a central bank creates when it expands its balance sheet. So you live through 25 years almost of that wonderful nirvana of depressing treasury yields by buying lots of treasuries, but also simultaneously printing lots of renminbi and generating lots of economic growth in China. That's a bull market. That's a lower discount rate and a higher growth rate. Uh, when there is no surplus, when there isn't upward pressure on the RMB, uh, you're not buying treasuries, you're actually selling treasuries. You're not printing money. You're actually doing what's called quantitative tightening. And China is not into an extreme version of that yet, but it is certainly not in the expansive version that it was in before. Now, just, just take it beyond China. For everybody else involved in that business of managing your currency relative to the dollar, you're doing it partially because China is doing it. And uh, that gives you some sort of protection. But if China moves away from that monetary system, there are huge questions to be asked for all emerging markets, including Brazil, as to whether the future lies in shadowing the United States dollar or whether the future lies in shadowing the RMB. And uh, that's a geopolitical, it's not just a financial and economic question. I think you'll be all too aware there are geopolitical issues about which uh, currency you would follow. And that's what I mean about the global financial system breaking down. And maybe we could discuss the, the consequences of that uh, going forward. Sure. Sure. Now, interesting, because we've seen countries like Russia and obviously China, which was the center of piece of this article, uh, starting to trade between themselves and outside of the US dollar system. So do you see a risk to the dollar domination? And, and how would that impact the world? So I think well, let's just move to the situation where we move to a free float in China. I think until China moves to a free float, actually, there's not much risk to the RMB, but it could, or to the dollar as a reserve currency. But it could move to a free float very quickly. Quickly, we have to remember that decision is taken by one man, Xi Jinping. So if you and I were managing the reserves for Brazil when China did that, I think we'd have a huge decision to make. Would we keep holding our, our holdings fairly firmly based on the dollar? And it's about 64% currently of all world reserves of the United States dollar. Or would we have to shift to the RMB? And I think the answer in a world without politics, in a world of exchange management, reserve management, the answer would be yes. Now, not maybe 20% or 30%, but we'd have that shift would have to begin if the RMB was flexible. Why only if the RMB was flexible? Because at the minute, by holding the dollar, we're kind of covering ourselves with RMB exposure given that they're linked. So I think that is the one trigger that can make it happen quite quickly. There's a longer term movement, which we've already seen uh, Russia move a significant portion of its reserves from America, from treasuries into Chinese government bonds. Uh, and that's because they're worried about sequestration by America. So the more America weaponizes its currency, uh, the more risk there is of that happening. Now, on top of all of this is the most important thing of all, which is geopolitics. So the economic reason for, for, for doing that diversification as a reserve manager are fairly clear. Uh, Saudi Arabia being another good example of where the business is significantly shifting away from America towards China. The geopolitics are stark. The biggest owners of reserves on the planet, almost without exception, but not quite, all rely on America for their defense. So if America doesn't want you to do that, there's a, let's just say, a friction that develops between what drives you economically and what geopolitically is possible. And I think particularly of North Asia, big reserves owners in Japan, Taiwan, Korea, uh, in particular, very reliant on this, Saudi Arabia reliant on American defense. So uh, the, I actually think the threat to the dollar is not as big, but mainly actually now for reasons of geopolitics, particularly if the relationship between China and America continues to deteriorate 
Uh, and quite literally, the rest of the world is being asked, which side are you on? And I think for most of the people who own the reserves, the answer is America. Okay, so you don't see the uh, us coming back to a gold standard or some sort of gold standard, right? The least likely outcome is a gold standard. Uh, the gold standard perished almost as soon as we moved towards democracy. Uh, it couldn't really survive democracy. Uh, democracy requires some degree of wealth reallocation. The gold standard doesn't really cope very well with wealth reallocation. So one, of course, could see a gold standard, but it would have to be after a huge crisis, a huge crisis of inflation, not deflation. And that would be a huge crisis in which people would question the very validity of democracy. So uh, while, while this is possible, it is highly unlikely that we get to that extreme situation. So I don't believe that any democracy would sign up for a gold standard. And if we look at your uh, friends to the south in Argentina, they did sign up for a currency board system, which is not a gold standard, but it's a very strict and uh, you know deflationary, uh, a very deflationary economic situation. But we're unable to live with it. And I long said, even before they devalued that, the democracy of Argentina would be incapable of dealing with such a hard currency. So I think perhaps in Argentina, we see a good example of why hard money and the necessary deflationary cycle that comes with it just isn't compatible with democracy. So I can't see us moving back to a gold standard. Okay. Okay. Now that you touch the subject of deflation, at the end of 2017, you mentioned that deflation would be the expected outcome of the situation we are in today. Is it still your view? And what has to happen in the world to avoid deflation? Yeah, well, that is a great question. I'll, I'll answer the second one first. I think a major reflation by China with a stable exchange rate is the thing that would make me change my mind. It's the thing in which I would clearly be wrong, is if we can generate much higher levels of growth without their exchange rate declining. Uh, what are much higher levels of growth in China? Well, you only have to go back a few years to see that they were growing at 24% per annum. Uh, obviously, that's nominal. But remember, when you've got a stable exchange rate to the dollar and you grow at 24%, percent nominal. It has a pretty big impact on the rest of the world and the rest of the world economy, particularly if you're the world's second biggest economy. So I, uh, I, I mean, I've looked at that. I've looked at it in detail. It's possible that China could reflate with a stable exchange rate, but to do that, they'd need to suck in a huge amount of capital. Uh, and I don't think this is the time and place to go through it. So, so whereas they might do that, they probably won't be able to do that. Uh, therefore, deflation to me remains the most likely outcome, not just because China devalues. And you've already hit it on the head earlier in one of your comments that if China devalues, we get deflation simply because they cut the dollar selling price of goods, but also it affects the solvency of its competitors. And we saw that most dramatically from 1994 to 1998, when the 94 RMB devaluation led to default in many emerging markets. And it obviously spread on from there to Russia and eventually came to Latin America as well. Sure. Uh, but the second reason for still being concerned about deflation is the developed world banking system. Not that it is not robust or well capitalized, but primarily because it is not creating money. And the great sort of mistake I think we've made is to look at the expansion of the central bank balance sheets and believe that creates money, liquidity and inflation and not focus on the commercial bank balance sheets because if they don't expand, actually you don't get a great growth in broad money. And without a great growth in broad money, it's unlikely we have inflation and anything that threatens the stability of the financial system is more likely to lead to a contraction in bank credit and a contraction in money. So we haven't solved that problem in the developed world and we have this issue with the Chinese exchange rate. So I continue to fear deflation more than inflation. And finally, the final, final thing is that total 
non-financial debt to GDP in the world uh, is now higher than it was in 2007. So the risks of a economic slowdown creating a credit crisis are actually higher than 2007. And the number one driver of any deflation, any quick deflation, short of a long technological deflation, is something that happens uh, in the credit system. Okay. Uh, specifically in the US, uh, there has been an asset price inflation. Uh, valuations are pretty high, well, I would say, and we'll touch the subject later on. But there's no inflation at the supermarket counter, uh, at least not yet. Do you still subscribe to this idea uh, in regards to the US? Because you see, there's full employment there. We're starting to see some pressures on salaries, specifically about the US. Do you see inflation picking up over there? Yeah, well, we can point to other economies where there's been full inflation for a very long time, but no inflation. Uh, and that would be Germany and Japan. So I'm not saying that the United States is direct parallel with Germany and Japan. The people of America are very different. But there's two large developed world economies with very tight labor markets and yet no inflation. So it is at least possible to conceive that we were moving to a world where you could have a tight labor market without inflation. We know the deflationary forces that offset this wage inflation. Uh, we see them uh, through Amazon. We see them through other technological innovations. We see them at least for the last year and a half through a stronger United States dollar. So just because you've got a tight labor market doesn't necessarily take you to high levels of inflation. What we're witnessing is the rest of the world slowing down. So if we go back to the late 1990s, we had a situation there where post the Asian crisis, currencies fell as they have done in emerging markets relative to the United States dollar. Economies slowed and America imported fairly significant deflation. And against a relatively tight labor market, against relatively reasonable wage inflation, the country generated incredibly low inflation. And I think that's at least the situation we're in, where America can import deflation, keep inflation low because of the overlay of the technological improvements. Uh, and arguably, if anything goes wrong in the global economy or wrong in the global financial system, US inflation could fall quite sharply. So I, I, once again, I would say that it's not incompatible to have a tight labor market uh, and falling inflation, particularly if you import the inflation and also because of this overlay on the technological improvements that are bringing it. I mean, I'm not one of those people who thinks we have deflation forever. Uh, we just have it at the minute. And back to the last point, when you have really low supply and money supply growth, and I think the US growth is now 4% per annum, which is incredibly low. It is difficult to conceive of a world of an expanding economy, rising inflation and rising asset prices. Okay. Okay. And do you have a view on valuations at the moment? Do you think they are too stretched? Yeah, there's a, there's a remarkable thing that's happened in valuations, and that is for the first time, really, there's a huge gap between the US and the rest of the world. So uh, I tend to look at a thing called the cyclically adjusted PE, which most of the, your listeners will be familiar with. And we can't get data on that, actually, for the rest of the world. We can't get great long-run data, but we can at least get it back to about 1978 for some big markets. And what you witness, if you look at the trends here, is that basically they follow each other. Uh, valuations, whether it's in Australia or it's in the United Kingdom or America bottom in, in 82, they go up to 95, they have this great rush to 2000, they come down. These valuations, they may not be absolutely of the same magnitude, but they're heading in the same directions at the same time until about 2014. And from 2014, US valuations marched up really until about this time last year when they peaked. They haven't come down a lot since then, but we are below the peak. But really since 2014, valuations elsewhere have been coming down. So we have this great gap now in valuations and the exposed market appears to be the United States of America. So if I'm looking at the absolute level of valuations in the United States, it would augur for poor returns over 10 years. It doesn't tell us, valuations tell us nothing about one-year returns. But over 10 years, it would suggest that U.S. equities will provide poor returns.
returns. However, if we look into Europe, it would say that you're going to get average returns. And if you look into emerging markets, it would say you're going to get above average returns. Now that I would never in my life recommend that I think an equity market is based on its valuation. Uh, if you're taking a 10-year view, those things are, are helpful. But this great big gap between valuations, I think, is, is fascinating. Sure, sure. Now, you, you wrote a book about bear markets and you reviewed more than 70,000 articles. In your opinion, what has happened in the markets at the end of last year? Was a correction or the beginning of another bear market? Okay, so I think it's the beginning of another bear market. Some of the things we've touched on already would have most of your listeners thinking about you know, why that is uh, why that's aligned with the bear market. Uh, but there's one specific thing going on, which I think is the trigger. Uh, calling triggers, by the way, is much, even more difficult than calling bear markets. But uh, And that is the supply of treasury securities. So you'll be aware that the uh, American fiscal deficit has effectively doubled uh, over the last few years. Years, uh, particularly due to the Trump tax cuts, which were enacted only in December 2017. But secondly, the Federal Reserve has gone from being a significant buyer of treasuries up until October 2014 to now being a significant liquidator of treasuries since October of 2018. Now, the net net of that is that roughly, if we go back to 2014, savers had to buy about $200 billion worth of treasuries. That was the sort of supply net supply to the marketplace because the Fed was buying a lot. And now it's gone to $1.34 trillion. So there's this massive turnaround and that is going to savers. Foreign central bankers are not buying these uh, securities. It was great when they bought them because they didn't sell anything to buy them. They just created money to buy them, as we discussed earlier. Uh, and I think what we're witnessing and what the data show is a significant switch by the American savings system away from equities towards treasuries, which is highly forecastable to continue because the uh, fiscal deficit isn't going away anytime soon. Federal Reserve could obviously change its mind, but the fiscal deficit itself is a trillion. That is bigger than the incremental addition to savings every year in the United States of America. So I think what happened in the fourth quarter is we just began to realize the scale of the shift in savings from equities to bonds, which is necessary in this situation. And it continues and continues and continues uh, through this year. So if that is to continue, that seems to me that a perfect catalyst for a bear market, even in U.S. equities. Uh, and as we discussed, there's plenty of reasons for equity uh, for bear markets outside the United States based upon what's happening in the global monetary system. Interesting. Now, normally if there's a problem, the weakest link suffers the most. And we saw it last year, first with Bitcoin and the cryptocurrencies, then other asset classes. Um, in regards to emerging markets, and you just mentioned that in um, on a 10-year view, it might be uh, an interesting uh, place to be. But I know you're not very fond of them at the moment. But what are the risks you see? For, for emerging markets? Is it, is it only China, stronger dollar, too much debt? What, what do you say? Well, that's a pretty good list. And I certainly agree with all of, <laughs> all of those. You know, it is true that emerging market debt to GDP ratios are significantly lower than developed world debt to GDP ratios. So it's possible to look at the balance sheets and say they're not too bad. Uh, unfortunately, the problem is the levels of foreign currency debt within that, which you're, you know, from the history of Brazil, something you're very aware of. Uh, Brazil is not one of the more vulnerable countries on that, but there are many emerging markets already in the world that have borrowed too much in foreign currencies, uh, largely dollars, but of course across Eastern Europe, largely euros. And that is a fatal flaw in their monetary systems, which will come home to haunt them, has done already if you live in Venezuela or if you live in Turkey. Uh, you're already suffering the repercussions of having far too much foreign currency debt. So when we look at a shock, and obviously we began this by discussing the change in the global monetary system, you're then looking for robust systems and unrobust systems. And you may lose money in a robust system, but you lose money and then it comes back. If you live in an unrobust system and you take one of these shocks, you can kind of lose everything or you can lose a much higher proportion of what you're investing. Uh, and the problem is there are key emerging markets, though by no means all of them, 
that do have these vulnerable balance sheets with far too much foreign currency debt. Uh, and therefore, that's why I'm much more concerned about them, really, than I am about others. Uh, and the second thing, we've discussed this slightly already, but I, I couldn't really overplay its importance, which is this geopolitical change that's underway in the world. And uh, probably not as important for, for Latin America. I know China's involved in Venezuela and elsewhere, but I think it's pretty clear where uh, Latin America finds itself on this side of the ledger. But in Asia, particularly for those emerging markets, I think there's dreadful choices to be made going forward uh, about which side of the ledger they're on. So that is you know, very negative for them. Can I freely trade with China, invest in China? Can they freely invest in me and be defended by the United States government? And, if the, ans- and the answer to that has been yes, and it's been incredibly beneficial for them. And if the answer to that begins to shift to being no, then you can see why you'd be particularly worried in the short term about the, the nature of these uh, equity markets. In the long run, equities discount just about everything. So when they're cheap enough, you can kind of buy them anyway. Uh, but given the, the scale of the adjustment if we are to have a China-US Cold War, I don't think the prices of Asian securities and equities are reflecting that. Okay, okay. So moving away from emerging markets, is Japan cheap? Is it, is it a good investment? Because one starts to see a few companies in Japan trading for less of their cash holdings. And, and I'm talking about profitable companies. Yeah, so I think the answer is yes. I think, I think that Japan is cheap. I think most value investors recognize it as cheap. Uh, it's one of the few places in the world where equities are cheap and companies are cheap. As you know, people then always talk about, well, what's the catalyst to drive it back to, uh, to fair value? Well, I do think one of the key catalysts would be success by the Bank of Japan in generating more growth than inflation. Inflation is good for corporates. There's a significant portion of their costs which are fixed, whether those are operational costs or balance sheet costs, and they benefit from more inflation. The Bank of Japan has failed in that to date, but uh, I don't have any doubt that one day it will succeed, though it might have to do even more dramatic. So yes, they're cheap, and yes, there's a catalyst. Crucially, certainly for anybody who's a dollar-based investor, you would want to hedge the currency risk, uh, because success for the Bank of Japan in producing more growth than inflation, uh, I don't imagine they're going to let interest rates go up very much. So there could be downside for the currency. So I think Japan is one of those places that we can consider as a good uh, long-term investment. But it is crucial, I think, to have the currency hedged. I know the currency trades like a safe haven goes up on bad news. uh, But success in reflation, I think, will have to bring that currency lower. Okay. And in your opinion, what are the major risks for the markets today that people are not talking about? Well, that's a a very good question. uh, Because everything I've mentioned so far is being talked about. But the question is, is it being talked about enough? Uh, there are very few things that happen in markets that really surprise us. The problem is that when you look at your screen every day, there are 50 things to think about. And it turns out it's number 48, which turned out to be the important (laughs) one. So I think what I've talked about are definitely all on the radar screen for investors. But sadly, they're not high high enough up that radar screen. And the most important one of all is actually the relationship between China and America. I think it's absolutely defined most of my, well, virtually all of my investing career. Uh, Over half of my life has been defined by that improvement economic, financial, social, and political relationship. Uh, And if it continues, then that's wonderful. But if, as we see, particularly from the speech that Mike Pence made in the Hudson Institute in Washington, D.C. on October 4th, anybody listening to this should really go and listen to that speech. If that sets the tone for what is de facto a new Cold War, then I really, really think people are not paying 
paying enough attention to that. You know, to be talking about inflation, to be talking about what level U.S. growth will be, I think is really a sideshow if this is that major deterioration just beginning, because the ramifications are not just economic, they're social, political, and perhaps even military. So that's the key thing, I think. You know, people shouldn't, I'm not saying that people should be incredibly bearish because of this. I'm just saying that's the question. Sure. It may be you ask yourself and you conclude that actually everything between America and China is fine and it's just saber rattling. But I think that needs to be much higher up all of our, particularly long-term investors. We need to have that much higher up in terms of the things that we uh, we consider. Sure, sure. Listen, uh, Russell, in the 80s, the, the investment Fed was to invest in portfolio insurance, which consisted of buying stocks and puts. Uh, today, the investment made popular by Ray Dalio and Bridgewater is risk parity, which... And, Obviously, I say this to simplify, it consists of buying a certain amount of equities and bonds according to a targeted risk and a return level. So do you see the portfolio insurance here of the 80s holding similarities to risk parity today in the sense of the perfect investment? So if I could talk more generally, as a financial historian, the biggest risk that ever happened in finance is when people find a system. <laughs> a system, and I'm not referring particularly to risk parity, I'm just sure. referring more generally. When investors find a system, it is going to end badly because what a system does is it absolves you from thinking and it absolves you from uh, making active changes in your portfolio because you're into a system. Now, I know people love systems. It's a, it's a human feeling to love a system because a system promises certainty, promises understanding, and for prolonged periods of time, absolutely delivers on that. And then we reach a sea change and it absolutely does not deliver on that. So I'm worried, not just in investing, in life, in philosophy, I'm worried about any blind system. Uh, now, this is a more sophisticated and blind system when we talk about risk parity, but clearly there are risks to it. Number one, liquidity, and, and uh, is there sufficient liquidity to meet the, the demands when the major changes come. Uh, but number two, we have lived through a prolonged bull market in bonds, which cannot continue. We can say that, I think, with some uh, degree of certainty, given where yields are, the degree of bull market in bonds of the last 40 years cannot continue. And I think the, the fatal flaw here is that basically all of the data, and once again, not specifically on risk parity, but all of the data that tells us about the relationship between bonds, inflation and equities for the past 40 years is not meaningful data. It covers a period of disinflation. It covers a period of globalization. It covers a period of rising markets and falling politics. And structurally speaking, all of those are in reverse. And if you just use the last 40 years data to estimate and run a system, then I think you're going to find yourself in deep, deep trouble. So that's a, a real against the system. Uh, but obviously, timing is key. Uh, and some of the things we've discussed today might suggest why it's a more difficult time than ever to rely on 40 years of data, 40 years of relationships, and say that these will pertain for the next 40 years. Sure. I, I assume you have a view on algos, right? Yeah, well, it's the same thing. It's, it's just, I mean, if you can give me an algo with 100 years of good data, then I'm quite happy to you know, have a conversation with it. But if an algo is crammed with 40 years of data, I think it's just, it's lived through one phase of history, one structural phase of history, and uh, it may have problems living through the next, you know, so are human beings, you know, it's not as if it's the algos the only problem. But when you're in a system, uh, you'll probably sit there wondering why the system isn't working before you realize that you're in a different system. Sure. Russell, uh, it was a very interesting and informative conversation. Uh, based on your views, how would one construct a portfolio to profit from the outcomes you mentioned? What, what shall we invest in? Yeah, so obviously, it's not a very optimistic uh, scenario. It's not optimistic for growth. It's not optimistic for inflation. And if 
if you're not optimistic on growth and not optimistic on inflation, it's difficult to be uh, very bullish on equities unless they're very cheap. Okay, so if they're very cheap. You can be that's kind of a lesson of anatomy of the bear. You can be very cheap anyway. The ones emerging markets look very cheap, but we've discussed why. There's a final problem coming for them, potentially a big one in the China-U.S. relationship. So I own Japanese equities because I, you know, obviously it has problems, but it's very cheap. And to me, the uh, Japan is very, very, very clearly in the American camp in this going forward. There'll be no question of it being in any other camp apart from America going forward. Equities are cheap and it will succeed in reflating. Beyond equities, I think uh, you need a good fund manager to find your high quality stocks at good prices. Uh, easier said than done, but some managers do manage to perform reasonably well even in bear markets. Uh, and then it's cash. And I still own uh, government debt of the United States of America. Uh, I do believe that in the scenario we've talked about here today, there will be buyers for U.S. government debt. Uh, I tend to hold cash in the form of dollars, but also now in sterling. And uh, I have no strong views on the outcome for Brexit, uh, but I live in a country that is incredibly undervalued because of its very low exchange rate. And its corporates are also very undervalued. So no doubt there's a rocky road ahead, but this is one of the places where at least on the exchange rate, I think you can conclusively say uh, things are cheap. And just finally on gold, uh, if we are talking about a geopolitical mess developing between America and China, I, do, I see the key beneficiary of that being gold. Uh, I also see in the longer term successful reflations, and particularly in China, maybe in Japan, uh, and that is also leading us towards gold. Excellent. Russell, once again, many thanks for coming to this program and sharing your insights with us. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. And I hope we'll find somebody making a long trek to Toronto to come and join us for the Practical History of Financial Markets course. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you. If you like this podcast, feel free to forward it to your friends and colleagues. We appreciate your time, support and your feedback. You can follow Marcelo Lopez on Twitter at MALopez1975. The information presented here is not investment advice and should not be taken as such. You should do your own due diligence and consult with your financial advisor before doing anything suggested or mentioned in this podcast. L2 Capital and its partners will not be liable for any losses that occur in doing whatever is discussed in this podcast.